Summertime and the living is <laughs> It's summer. Time to travel to a beautiful location, relax, and enjoy some music. Which apparently is what all of the classical musicians do, because we can't find any to do classical classroom episodes in town. So, we headed to the hills. And lo, we discovered there are these magical musical oases, oases, whatever, called classical music festivals. Every summer, students, performers, and orchestras spend their supposed time off making yet more music. Each year, a classical classroom is going to highlight a different festival. This year, we traveled to sunny Santa Barbara, California, to the Music Academy of the West. So chill out, hang ten, insert other surfer phrases, and enjoy this classical classroom summer music festival series. Hey listeners, welcome to episode two of our Music Academy of the West Summer Music Festival series. Music Academy of the West Summer Festival is an eight-week affair that draws classical music superstars from all over to teach master classes and give performances. As you'll learn in this episode, though, they do a lot more. We're going to hear from trumpet player and performance coach Bill Williams, but before we get to my chat with Bill, let's hear a little more from our spirit guides, Music Academy of the West CEO and President Scott Reed, faculty clarinet, Richie Holly and Viola Fellow, that's what they call their students, Matthew Sinno. So Matthew, the impression that I'm getting of the Music Academy of the West Summer Festival is that you, yeah, you're practicing and you're performing and all of that, but that you're essentially doing it in this spa-like setting. They have like a, a really holistic approach to what you guys are doing. So tell me more about what you're doing there other than performing and practicing. To start off, the festival is in Santa Barbara, which is absolute paradise. The the campus is literally on top of Butterfly Beach, which is beautiful. So I'm always on the beach. All the fellows get together. We we play frisbee. We go for a swim. We go back to the Westmont campus is where we live. I mean, we play basketball, even though we probably shouldn't. I jammed my finger yesterday, actually. (laughs) 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 But yeah, there's just it's just a real sense community, and you make a lot of great friends and. Yeah. We also, Adisha, have a wellness program here at the Music Academy. Mm. Um, the idea is, you know, tools that, that that can help take care of the body that will sustain the career on stage. So we've got a, a celebrity trainer in tra- town. Her name is oh, Jenny fine. Schatzel, and uh, her team come and they do one yoga class a week at our residential campus, one kickboxing class, and one cardio class. And so, you know, it's it's about the whole musician. And there's so many aspects of being a, a, a professional musician that happen off stage um, that help create what maybe an audience member sees on stage. So, I would say holistic. That's a really good way good way to put it. You know, mind, body, and spirit of how do you how do you have a really vibrant career in music? Yeah, and. Um, I, I do my own mind, body, spirit, because I'm from California originally, and I, my family's in California. So I return uh, here often, even when the, uh, the festival's not running, and it's to surf, because yeah, I grew up surfing, and it's wonderful to be able to blow off some steam here and um, surf before uh, rehearsals and after rehearsals, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful part of the life here. Okay, well, I'm sold. 
No, I, I wish I was a classical musician and I could come there. <laughs> but ultimately, this all sort of comes back around to being a performer, getting up on stage, being a better musician. Yeah, well, I, I'm very lucky because I went to some of the, the finest um, music festivals uh, in Japan and uh, here in the United States. And I still had to learn how to play for a, an audience of wonderful paying customers in my professional life and how to speak to them uh, in public. Uh-huh. And uh, these young talents, they're starting their performing life. Uh-huh. They're starting their life as entertainers and, mm-hmm. in, and being part of a community much earlier than I did. Yeah. This element is so important to our program. We've got these great teachers like Richie here. We've got these great young artists like Matt here. And, you know, in a, you can only hone your skill so much in a practice room mm-hmm. or in a teaching studio. Actually getting on stage and performing in front of a live audience is an opportunity to really practice your communication or, you know, a more elevated word, your artistry. And we've learned that by getting our fellows on stage in front of an audience over and over and over again, that gives them a chance to take risks, find out what works, find out what doesn't work. And we've learned that, you know, many times a a fellow will get more performing opportunities in eight weeks at the Music Academy than they will in one year at a major conservatory yeah. uh, and sometimes all four years in a major conservatory in front of a live audience. So it is a really defining uh, factor about the Music Academy experience. It's really hitting home right here what Richie and Scott are both saying. Uh, I know for me personally, the the best thing I've taken away from Music Academy of the West is that I really learned to just embrace and love making music again. I went through a period about five or six years ago when I first got to Juilliard where I was terrified to be on stage. I'm not talking about little butterflies in your stomach. I mean, it was like a, a flight or yeah. fight survival mode where I was, my hands were shaking. My heart was just beating out of my chest. And it, it was awful. I, 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 for a while there, I really questioned, like, is this, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Do I want to be in this environment where I'm so stressed? And a large part of that was because, you know, here I was, 18 years old at the Juilliard School where the stakes get a little higher. And I think mm-hmm. it's the same with a lot of conservatories out there where there seems to be a lack of emphasis on the performing itself. So then you, you come to a place like Music Academy of the West where all you're doing is playing music, you're collaborating with friends, your orchestra, chamber music, solo playing, you're doing it all. And it's just, it's just so important for us to be in that kind of environment. And for me, it, it was just a really big mentality change. I started to realize, like, hey, you know, they, they, these, these audience members, they don't care if you play a wrong note or you, mm-hmm. you play out a tune. Like, that, that's not what it's about. They're here. They genuinely want to get to know you, and they want to see you have a great time on stage. And I'm, I'm happy to say now I love being on stage. I love being able to communicate and share my music with others. And I don't think that would be the case if I had not come to Music Academy of the West. Yeah, I can completely understand how difficult it is to get over those kinds of fears. And it's really cool that you were able to kind of use your experience at the festival to overcome that. Guys, thanks for your time. We'll catch you in the next episode.
And that's actually a perfect segue into our special guest for this episode, Bill Williams. In addition to being principal trumpet for orchestras like San Francisco, Santa Fe, Barcelona, and others, Bill is also a performance coach and educator. He's worked with a sports psychologist to improve musicians' performance skills at institutions like Juilliard, Curtis, and the New World Symphony. But right now, Bill is at the Summer Festival at the Music Academy of the West. Bill Williams, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thanks very much, Deja. I'm really pleased to be here, and I'm very excited to be here to talk about some uh, topics that are near and dear to my heart in many ways as a performer. So we've just heard from somebody who has dealt with and overcome stage fright, which is kind of what you deal with. So why don't you tell us a little more about what you do? Great. Well, this is my third summer at the Music Academy of the West, and I was brought into the festival to begin a new course of study, essentially a practical kind of study, and we've titled it The Path to Optimal Performance. Mm. Now, the Path to Optimal Performance program is a four-week program that is featured at the beginning of the Music Academy's season, mm -hmm. and there are some really specific reasons for that. Uh, musicians, of course, uh, the fellows are coming from many different schools, and while some of them know each other and know the teachers with whom they'll be studying, many don't, and so beginning by introducing the students to ways in which they can help to mitigate their stress responses mm -hmm. during performance mm -hmm. uh, in master classes, concerts, concerti, etc., is, is a great way to kick things off for them and to provide them with some tools that they can leverage during their experience at the Music Academy. Nice. Well, how, how did you get into performance coaching? Because I think uh, when most people think performance coaching, they think, sports, but you've kind of brought that mindset and aesthetic to musicians. And why is that? Well, it's, again, it comes back to a very personal reason for me. You see, I, uh, I attended the Eastman School of Music and I majored in trumpet performance there and went on to what was uh, a career that I was very fortunate to have. The first position I had was in the San Diego Symphony. And I continued down the path as a trumpet player, playing in a number of other orchestras in the U.S. And uh, fast forward a bit, uh, I was fortunate enough to um, be offered a position uh, playing as a principal trumpet in the Barcelona Symphony mm -hmm. first, and then won a position to play as the solo trumpet in Bern, Switzerland. Now, interestingly, when you are a brass player and you're playing as a soloist, uh, that is the principal position in an orchestra in many of the European orchestras, mm -hmm. lots of opportunities start to come your way. Uh, that is, uh, many solo engagements, uh, chamber music opportunities, and that sort of thing were presented to me in a much higher number than they typically had been in the, in the U.S. Right. We, I had a lot more flexibility with my schedule. I found myself saying yes to some of these engagement opportunities and then playing very well one night. Everything I had done to prepare, it went extremely well. And then the next night, I felt like I was playing about 70% of my, in quotes, best huh. playing. And this was something that was really puzzling to me and kind of disturbing to me. You know, on the surface here, I was enjoying a career that was by most people looking at it was very successful. And in this early midpoint in my career, I found myself starting to really suffer in, in, during performance and uh, having to find ways to cope with performance anxiety. I started reaching out to a number 
number of uh, different methodologies in trying to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. I would sit meditation, which I still do on a regular basis and mm-hmm. practice yoga. Mm-hmm. And I explored some other paths, neuro-linguistic programming and, and other potential um, sources uh, that would help me to overcome this performance anxiety, being able to deal with the here and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was, but there was a problem, though. As relaxed and focused as I could feel um, offstage, th- this still wasn't uh, mitigating the, the issues that I was having in, yeah. during performances. <laughs> and, I understand. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and it was literally a chance uh, meeting with a friend in New York City. And I was talking to her over lunch about uh, some of the things I was dealing with. And she said, well, it just so happens that there's a sports psychologist by the name of Don Green who's begun working with musicians. Now, this is back in the late 1990s. And she gave me his contact information and said, you ought to give him a, tr- give him a ring. See if he has any time before you head back to uh, Switzerland. <laughs> and so I did. And I began working with Don at that point in time. And I found this work so helpful in such a, a relatively brief period of time, several sessions with him, working with some of the sports psychology performance uh, tools, inventories, uh, techniques, and things that were tailored to my own area of need mm-hmm. that uh, I, it, it completely floored me. And I, interestingly, it not only helped me to become a much better performer in that point in time, uh, I decided to quit performing and return to graduate school to study psychology and to work directly with Don and co-teach with him at the Juilliard School. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is at the time that you started exploring this just personally, there, were, there wasn't really this place that you could go as a musician, like a, a one-stop shop to, to sort of to help you with the issues that you were having. And you perhaps began to see a niche that needed to be filled. Now, my goal in beginning to address this was not so much to fill a niche for a wider audience, if you, as it were, at the mm-hmm. time, but uh, something that uh, it was something that I had been looking for, and I didn't even realize I had been looking for um, mm. er- earlier in my career. Uh, there's always there's been a lot of talk about um, beta blockers and how many performers use them oh, in, in really? different situations. And, and Imagine for, for people yes. don't know beta blockers, yeah. they sort of uh, keep your heart from beating too fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. right. They they inter- it's essentially interfering with one aspect of what happens when adrenaline is produced mm-hmm. in the midst of a, a challenging performance or a threatening circumstance. And uh, well, I'll be candid with you. Uh, this is something I I had tried on occasion uh, during what I would call very important or intense uh, concerts mm-hmm. uh, or performance situations. But what I found they did to me is they completely numbed me out, and I oh, felt no. like even when I was in a, in a, in in a sense, I wasn't expressing the music I had inside me. This was something that was just helping me to not freak out <laughs> yeah. in, in in present time, and 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 so it was. It, there was a lot of mystery about how how to deal with this. I mean, one of the old things that people teachers would talk about across many many instruments was, well, you ju- one just needs to practice more. That's all it's about. Mm-hmm. Or um, work harder. You need to work harder. But it, that wasn't the recipe for success. Just that alone. It was. It was about something else. For mm-hmm. me, in, in in the work I did, it was beginning to literally learn how to control my attention. 
and also to mitigate or to reduce or uh, counteract the effects that this whole stress response, this fight-flight response has mm -hmm. on us when we're in that moment um, of uh, a, a major performance where there's a tremendous amount of pr pressure on you to perform and to perform well. Right, yeah, as a person who in the past has experienced some pretty intense uh, anxiety I I am right there with you. That's the 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 fight or flight and being able to stop that because what happens is your your brain is essentially just trying to take care of you, you know, because it's like danger, danger, and mm -hmm. and so you know you either you kick into fight or flight, which sets off this domino effect of adrenaline in your body, which makes you feel really strange. Which makes you scared, uh, yes. which makes you pump more adrenaline, which, and then all of a sudden you're just in a tailspin. Yeah, and, we talk yeah. about that. So this it's this downward performance spiral that we're coping with, and mm -hmm. when trying harder, and I'll put harder, trying harder in quotes doesn't help. Now, yeah. the, 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 behind all of this, uh, Daisha, is the the issue surrounding this is that we're essentially hundred thousand year old uh, hardwired organisms dealing with. The kinds of stressors that that we have not yet, in, in a sense, evolved to uh, cope with. Mm -hmm. This general fight or flight response that we're we're talking about here is something that protects you in the face of, uh, in psychological terms, would be called basic threat. Right. That is, you're con you're confronted with a life threatening situation. You're you're about to be attacked by someone in a dark alley, uh, or in in a case I had, I was about I was being attacked by a black bear while I was mountain biking one time, and uh, it was a very interesting experience I had. Uh, I live in in northern New Mexico in Santa Fe, and I'm an avid mountain biker. Mm -hmm. And I was in a remote part of a region near Taos, New Mexico, and I was literally attacked by a black bear and oh had to God. use my mountain bike to defend myself. Now, wow. uh, yes, uh, this was all during the Santa Fe Opera season of 2001. Oh. <laughs> um, well, and in that situation, um, your fight or flight, you know, instinct, your or uh, just your natural impulse to fight or flight, super useful. Absolutely. I <laughs> yeah. mean, I can, I can, I can tick off everything that happened to me at that time. Of course, time distorted. Uh, I had no real sense of time. I had a watch on. So after the bear moved away, I was able to time my exit from that area and hope that I could get away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, my muscles became really tight. My eyes were darting all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my pulse was racing. I was mobilized to, of course, fight or to flee. All that's great when you're in the midst of a confrontation with a 300-pound black bear. Right. However, <laughs> not so helpful when you're walking onto the stage of Carnegie Hall right. about to present as a soloist or to play as a principal in an orchestra. Yeah, the, um, and then you face the black bears of the mind. That's right. Yeah. So I feel like we should back up just a little bit. What, sure. What was it in your... Uh, conversations with Don, um, was it Don Green? You said? Green, yes. Green, mm -hmm. The sports psychologist that, that inspired you so much that you literally quit performing and went to school to study psychology. Well, one of the core things uh, for me is that it's important to learn how to manage your attention. By that, I mean, in, in, in the midst of a fight or flight situation, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's on the stage or somewhere else, uh, our attention tends to get either very, very scattered or overly focused. Mm -hmm. 
See, the ability to pay attention appropriately at a given time and in a given situation diminishes really significantly when we're under a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. From my experience uh, as a performer, when I wasn't focusing on becoming more focused and knowing Mm -hmm. how to do that consistently, Mm -hmm. my thoughts would go anywhere from, oh, I wonder if I turned the stove off at home in the middle of a big concert uh, (laughs) or, (laughs) oh no, here comes that high C again. What am I going to do? Or oops, what just happened? So what I'm, what I'm talking about is I'm not in present time. Right. You know, my mind is jumping ahead, jumping backwards, going to something completely unrelated. And that's a very normal symptom of this acute stress response or the stress response. Uh, so managing attention was a big one for me, mm-hmm. and it's, it is for many people. I'd uh, like to add that particularly now in 2016, people are bombarded by information oh, yeah. on a daily basis at a rate which they we literally don't have any tools for coping with this, whether we're on our mobile devices, uh, the multiple screens you see in virtually every public venue, a restaurant, a bar, shopping mall. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, a gas station that has an advertisement blaring out of some you know, audio speakers you're trying right. to pump your gas. We're, we're, we're constantly bombarded with uh, information, if we want to call it information, <laughs> yeah. um, or um, advertising, and between that and our own ability to distract ourselves away from being present, this is something that's a major challenge now, and it's, it's more heightened than ever. Again, man- learning how to manage attention is one of the key elements. Right. The, the the human mind just has so much sort of thought traffic in it mm-hmm. already, naturally. Even if we yes. had no sort of input from technology, we, you know, didn't live in cities around an unnatural amount of, of noise and motion pollution. But we do. <laughs> so, yes, and yeah. it, it, it only exacerbates yeah. the uh, situation, really. Um, I know that uh, there, there are very different ways that people in the past, uh, you know, performers specifically, have worked to try to mitigate this attentional mm-hmm. issue. One of my very favorite artists of all time, the pianist Glenn Gould, oh, yeah. and his, his real struggles major struggles with performance anxiety. In fact, I know that at home, he would practice often with a vacuum cleaner running in the background, and I'm not sure what comfort or distraction level of distraction that, that afforded him, but it did allow him to focus in, in a way huh. that without it, at times, it, it wasn't possible. Reflecting on his, his performance career, too, of course, this, is, uh, this was somebody who had so much to offer and did offer a tremendous amount in terms of um, musical... Uh, brilliance and insight in performing, but found in a sense that he came to this place, what I would call, there was this triumph of perfection over expression Hmm. in the live setting. Hmm. Uh, And that to me is a great tragedy. And I think that's something that many classical musicians uh, struggle with, uh, is this notion that there's this kind of codified what should be and what ought to be Mm. based on recordings that are made typically in very, you know, non-realistic environments. And yet we're holding ourselves to those uh, standards. And because of that, a number of significant players are dealing with the fallout from this, which is this kind of really uh, powerful um, performance anxiety. Wow. So what do you do? What what do you, when you uh, go to musicians who are experiencing what you're talking about, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. How do you approach it? How do you fix it? How do you how do you get people out of their heads and into the music? Well, it's a process that's a pretty open uh, one, and it's flexible depending upon the individual. But really, what we we begin with would be an individual session, and I, I listen. I do a tremendous amount of listening to hear how people are talking about what they're dealing with when it's happening, what the results of this performance anxiety uh, might be for them, uh, whether it's um, physiological manifestations, attentional, other mental manifestations, and then emotional manifestations of it. Mm -hmm. And then we work with an inventory, which is essentially a hundred word questionnaire that's been very carefully crafted and used for many, many thousands of initially uh, elite athletes and then was um, translated into an inventory which is used with performing musicians. Mm -hmm. And so we use that as the basis for our work forward. It helps us to find our way onto the same page relatively efficiently and Mm -hmm. quickly and helps to outline uh, certain trends of uh, performance strengths, performance weaknesses, and then we devise an action plan to begin working on these things. Now, the the beauty of this work, Dacia, is that it's not like a psychoanalysis. Uh-huh. This really is digging into what's working now, what's not working now, uh-huh. and then putting together an, a, a strategy for addressing the some of these key areas. It's like uh, a cognitive because- behavioral approach. As well, cognitive behavior. Talk therapy. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. In fact, uh, we we leverage some of those uh, techniques within within the scope of this work, and it really is about what's functional, what's not functional within the within the the context we're looking at, mm-hmm. and how do we help this person be put them on a on a, on a road to uh, performing better now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, within several sessions, we can, somebody who's really devoting their time to this can begin to see some significant changes in their ability to pay attention and to cope with you know, whatever is going on. And even more importantly, at the, at the core of this is a better understanding of what is and what isn't working mm-hmm. for them. And uh, a couple of key things uh, within this, though, is that people who are engaged in this work with me and at the Music Academy in the summers is that we do have, we'll have a a series of lectures, which are large and quite interactive group sessions, unpacking uh, the whole idea of stress, uh, how people react to it. And in this sharing already uh, amongst themselves, uh, the musicians really, there's something, there's, you can almost feel a collective sigh of relief in the room. <laughs> and it's not just me, you know, and <laughs> as bad as I feel sometimes, it's uh, physically or what's going on in my head, this is totally normal stuff. Yeah. And so I think opening that Pandora's box and letting that out is a huge Great, first thing. Now, and then moving on from there, we then segue into even some group sessions where the performers, uh, the musicians, will begin to play for each other and to observe each other, notice what's working, what's not quite working, and begin within that kind of simulated performance context so that it's not just about learning about yourself, it's also it's, it's getting that self-knowledge in very specific areas, mm-hmm. developing some techniques, and then beginning to put them to use right away. It's practicing just as, as you'd practice your scales. And for me as a performer, I know that before I go on stage, there are a couple of things in several, there's a technique I use to ground myself, Mm -hmm. deal with any of the excess muscle tension I have, 
use my energy rather than trying to suppress it mm-hmm. you, and then leverage the power of visualization. But the visualization is more than just seeing things in my mind. It's hearing and feeling also. So it's like a multimodal imagery mm-hmm. and spending just, it could be as little for me at this point as five, 10 seconds. And, uh, you know. You know, it's, it's interesting as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, I think people expect that a, a person who's chosen to be a performing musician as a career, like, of course, they're cool with performing. So it must be just a, a fantastic relief to people, <laughs> to musicians to find out that, oh, this is this is an issue that other people have because, you know, the, the greater populace is just looking at you going, well, you picked this. You must be OK with it. <laughs> and, you know, it, it actually makes me think about some of my colleagues in radio. Um, uh-huh. and there's a guy here at the station who just... Uh, uh, went off to work uh, to another city but he uh. he's on the news every day on the mic mm-hmm. live radio mm-hmm. but cannot stand to be up in front of people at events like even at, at his goodbye you know he he mm-hmm. would not stand up in front of people who was just like no no I'm good <laughs> <laughs> no this is yeah. something that uh, I'm I'm glad you're you're bringing this up Dacia because one of the the challenges we have is in this is that uh, what you're talking about with this colleague of yours is very comfortable in a given environment. Yeah. Uh, he knows the environment very well. There's been a tremendous amount of performance and practice within mm-hmm. that environment. I could I, I would uh, it's different but quite similar in a sense to sitting in the back of an orchestra, even playing as principal trumpet, and then standing in front of the orchestra as a soloist. Oh, yeah. Something that if you're not really that accustomed to feels. Uh, what am I doing here? I feel like my body's about to float away. You know, right. a, a key takeaway in my early work with Don was learning that people who seem to be doing courageous things, many of them are doing them in spite of the fear that they continue to have because they're yes. compelled to do them. Yes, it's a dirty, dirty secret of the you know media <laughs> being a media. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> or a performing. Um, I of believe. Any kind. I believe you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. One of which is, uh, can you give me uh, an example or two of some specific techniques that that you utilize? You mentioned visualization. What What else do you employ? Okay, one of I think one of the the best and simplest things somebody could do, and I would encourage any performer out there to try this uh, before they're going into an important lesson or uh, masterclass, recital, concert, what have you, is to take a moment and ground yourself. And I'll talk through that in a Mm. few seconds. But when we're in this fight-flight response, you talked earlier about this kind of spiral or this mm-hmm. you, you, you get more nervous, the body the, produces more adrenaline, the mind tries to attribute this to some other threat that may not even be verbalized in your head, and, this, and things spiral downward. Mm-hmm. Now, one way you can begin to break this cycle is actually to learn where you get tense before you're going into a certain event. Now, hmm, you take like a physically? Specific, Physically, yes. Okay. Now, I'll talk you through um, <laughs> the opening of Mahler's Fifth Symphony for me. This is a right. piece I recorded as principal trumpet with the San Francisco Symphony. And if you, you do you know the opening, uh, the opening call to the Fifth Symphony by any chance? I don't think I do, no. Oh, that's okay. So <laughs> the, the opening to this symphony is the solo, a, a solo trumpet at the back of the orchestra playing a 
very soft and intense funeral march mm. uh, set of fanfares by itself for the first, let's say, 10, 12 seconds. This sets the tone for the entire hour-ish long work with a hundred plus musicians on stage around you. Now, there aren't many things for me, I can say, that would have made me more nervous than having to begin that piece mm -hmm. and begin it knowing you're being recorded. <laughs> um, and in, in the absence of... Uh, you know, any kinds of tools, you know, a lot of people have their own works or workarounds um, just to get set and to go. But for me, something that works wonderfully is to notice where I'm tense in my mm -hmm. body. And if, my sh if it's my shoulders, I breathe in, literally breathe in, exhale, drop the tension out. Uh, if I'm super tense, I might do that one more time. Breathe in, tense up, exhale, drop the tension out. And mm -hmm. notice the other three or four areas in my body that seem really tense. Mm -hmm. um, and breathe in and repeat this uh, over, you know, once you've become accustomed and you know where you get tense before you play, you can combine those muscles, breathe in, tense them all up, exhale, drop it out, mm -hmm. drop that tension out. Right there, you become much more grounded. And interestingly, the mind begins to respond to that and it slows down the quality of, of thinking. This mm -hmm. is getting you uh, away from this going into fight flight mode. Mm -hmm. And it's a, this is one very simple thing that I, I could encourage and would in fact exhort people to do if they're feeling uh, nervous before a performance. It's an extremely simple thing, mm -hmm. uh, but that can begin to really, it can begin to help you uh, right away. So that's, that's one key takeaway yeah. I would like to offer. There's part of, of having anxiety of any sort is that you sort of feel like you're having an out-of-body experience. It just feels mm -hmm. so so strange. And so if you can, I'm sure that that exercise has the side benefit of grounding you mm -hmm. in your body, like yes. making you sort of mentally, like you're, you're physically relaxing yourself, but you're also paying attention to your your actual body, you know, instead of, That's sort of right. going and off in this, you know, thought parade. Yeah, I have, uh, I, I thought of it in a very interesting way. You know, the old um, counterculture saying, turn on, tune in, drop out. I <laughs> thought about it as turn in, go inward, uh, tune up, get ready, and then drop down. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. so the, the whole idea here is, is is getting back into your body and doing it in a, in a, in a way that you are taking control of that situation mm -hmm. and getting grounded. And that's, that's a key before going on stage for anything, or even when one is in the midst of a performance or a lecture or a presentation and you have a few seconds to yeah, get yourself grounded again. Yeah, and, and you talked about how like sort of doing that physical exercise can begin to affect your mind as opposed to, you know, the, the other way around, the like... I run and one of I was reading this article about um, the fact that if you actually if you're just feeling really terrible on a run, if you mm -hmm. smile 
all of a sudden you begin to feel better because in the same way that that feeling good makes you smile, smiling can also make you feel good. Well put. This yeah. is and and you've uh, maybe you you've uh, read or I'm I'm sure you're aware of the research that went went on around that. Um, they had people complete a form of some sort, and they had them hold pencils in between their teeth, and it would create a smile. And the people were not aware of that. And whatever the rating was on this, it was it had something to do with their mood. And people who were holding the pencil between their teeth across their teeth and were forced into the smile. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of rictus. Um, <laughs> they they answered. Uh, they, they their scores were more positive, and they That's were super completely unaware of that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it also is a testament to the power of that. You know, um, in a sense, fake it till you make it. If that's the yeah. case, when you're feeling that way in a run, it, absolutely, it totally, totally works. That that sort of like doing something f- physically that affects your mind. But I have one more question before. We go. Sure. What is your favorite thing to do for fun while you're attending the festival? Well, uh, I'm a avid mountain biker. Oh, yeah. So I do a lot of mountain biking and uh, trail running as well. Nice. And I'll pile on by saying I get in the water sometimes on a longboard. I le- my I have a ten year old son who loves surfing. He's a very fine surfer. After uh-huh. three summers of two months each summer surfing here and so um i fancy myself a very poor surfer and i love being (laughs) in the water so those are the three things mountain biking running and surfing (laughs) awesome bill williams thank you so much for being on the classical classroom this has been a really interesting conversation i really appreciate you taking the time out of being at the festival to do the show all right everybody that does it for this episode of classical classroom for more classroom go to houstonpublicmedia.org classroom follow us using your choice of social media twitter tumblr youtube soundcloud snapchat that's hard to say um email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org subscribe to us rate us and review us on itunes it will make you better at whatever you do thanks today to audio producer todd triple lutz holslander for twiddling knobs thanks to editor mark de claudio for his piercing eye of the tiger eyes thanks to bill williams for being on the show today Thanks to the good people over at the Music Academy of the West for all their help with this, especially to Kate Oberyat, who is amazing and has helped us with basically everything. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.